Hi, um, so welcome to the Adventism.net podcast. I'm your host, Wei Lu, and today we have our co-host as well, Caleb Wells. How you doing? Hey, y'all. How's it going, Why? Yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, unfortunately, Sean can't make it today. Right. Be Work. Speaking yeah. host. <laughs> Some, sometimes, yeah. just, you can't can't get away. He's, he's an important man, and... <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they've got yeah, well, you almost didn't make it at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> How are things in Australia? Yeah, we're pretty good. We're getting some good weather and stuff like that, and lockdown's finished. So, and um, yeah, like we're nice. starting to kind of dealing with living with COVID now. So it's good. Yeah, yeah. Still haven't got my haircut though. I need to give a haircut today. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I could use a haircut too, right? right. <laughs> and and I think most of you have may have seen a picture of me, right? I am bald, so. <laughs> I don't need a haircut. <laughs> yeah. So today we got a we got our guest today called Sam Nasser. How you doing, Sam? Very good, Way. How are you? Yeah, great. So Sam, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Sure. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I've been a software developer since uh, 1995, if you can think all the way back then or even find it on a calendar. And I've been focusing mostly on the Microsoft stack uh, since about the year 2000. And uh, I always tell people, not only did I drink the Microsoft punch, I overdosed on it. (laughs) So I've been like, knee deep into the entire stack and uh, learning about it and uh, loving every bit of it. And then I started doing freelance consulting back in 2008 and uh, never looked back. I delved into a variety of areas into .NET, but probably my biggest love is uh, Azure and especially cognitive services within mm-hmm. Azure. It's been a lot of fun and very powerful, very easy to use and do a lot of great things with it. The basic question, what is Azure cognitive service? Mm-hmm. Actually, it's services, plural. So they offer a variety of different services within four different areas, decision-making, language, speech, and vision. And essentially, it's a set of APIs that once you train your model, it can do a variety of things. Recognize natural spoken language. It can detect objects within an image. You can do OCR. It can also be used for personalizing your own uh, routine as far as uh, items to pick that would best suit you, anomaly detector, a lot of a variety of other things that are basically within the four categories that I mentioned earlier. So do I have to be an expert in, in AI or do I just utilize it like an API? Basically, if you can make an API call, it, uh, it turns you into a machine learning expert. You do some training. There's a user interface that goes along with it that helps you to, to walk through it and, and train your model. And then you essentially publish that model using the REST API. And then if you can make a REST API call, you're hitting that model, you're getting the results back in JSON, and then you can deserialize it and then look for the items that uh, are of importance to you at that point. 
So in a nutshell, make an API call, get the JSON results set, and boom, you're an ML expert. So what are what are some of the things you've used it for, either for work or for play? So one of my favorite features is Lewis or the Language Understanding Intelligence Service. And what I love about that is it basically takes natural spoken language and then it breaks it down into what the intent is and then entities identified within that intent. And the example that I always use because I'm a huge car buff We see things like uh, Carvana, where you can buy a car online. You don't have to interact with any salesperson. So if you were to take that a step further, and let's say you walk into a dealership and you just have a kiosk that's that's displayed there, you can enter in any of the items that you want. So for example, instead of phrasing a question in a particular way or a sentence in a specific way, such as, I want to buy a car, you can phrase it in a variety of different ways and Lewis will still understand you. So you can say, I'm looking for a Corvette. I want to buy a car. Do you have any any convertibles available in your inventory? All three are various sentence structures using different words, but the intent is still the same. If I was talking to a normal person, right? Obviously, they would know that I'm interested in, in buying a car. So once I train the Lewis model to be able to pick up on that as far as the, the, the car in the sentence and what types of cars... And then I can identify that as the intention of buying a car. And so I train it. And so any sentence structure that's introduced or entered into Lewis at that point, it will automatically decipher it and figure out that, yes, that that user needs to buy a car. So I'm no longer constrained into a specific sentence structure or having to type things in. But let me, let me rephrase that. So with Lewis, you do enter in a text string and you submit it. But if you were to piggyback on it with another cognitive service, such as speech to text, then you could just simply speak to it. It will convert that to text. You take that text, submit it to Lewis, and then you get the results set back from Lewis. So essentially, you could speak to your application. You no longer have to type in this rigid sentence structure or pick specific commands, but rather just interact with it as you would any other human being. Cool. And you can, like, is this stuff out of the box or do you have to train that, that Lewis robot to, to do things um, specifically for your use case? So it's a little bit of both. There are pre-built uh, models that are available within Lewis. So things like geographical locations, currencies, things that are already predefined. You can use those pre-built models, but you can also customize it and train it for your own specific scenario. Mm-hmm. So like, for example... One of the demos that I did recently, I entered in, I want to buy a C300. Well, it wasn't sure what a C300 is, right? Uh, And and many car buffs may not know what that is. But then once you train it and and identify that as a a vehicle or a car, then it picks up on it in other utterances that you may specify. Nice. And how do you train it? Do you like kind of just show pictures of cars or like string? I don't know, like um, how how do you do it? (laughs) Actually, so the pictures, that's another service, but uh, you would train it simply with the sentence structure. You'd enter it in, and then it will give you a result set back, and it will tell you how confident it is. could be 30% confidence or 50% confidence, but then you can adjust it and specify that with the phrase, I want to buy a C300, you can specify C300 as a car or an, an entity, and that the overall intent is to purchase a vehicle. Thank you. So you train it with various sentences. You don't have to list all the sentences and possible combinations that a user may want, but you give it a, a specified or um, 
a finite set and it will learn based on that set. And then any additional utterances or sentences provided beyond that would fall into that category of, of buying a car. So with the, with the image recognition, I'm assuming you have to train it as well, but can it pick out faces or animals or plant types? Are there any limitations to the image recognition? So under the vision category, there are several different subcategories. Uh, you have computer vision and custom vision, and, and the name always confuses me. I always have to refer to my notes. But essentially within custom vision, you can do what's called object detection. So I know our our viewers or our listeners are just listening to audio right now, but as we're interacting right now over a video stream, you can see that the image on my mm -hmm. side, obviously you have me talking, but then there are other images in the background. You have a filing cabinet, you have bookcase, picture frame, a variety of things within the entire image. So you can train it to pick out these certain objects within that image. And the beautiful thing about that is now it can uh, be very useful in a business scenario. So let's say that you are a custom provider for uh, heating and air conditioning, like one of my clients, and you walk in and you say, I want this gadget. I have no idea what it's called, but I need this gadget. And you just simply display a picture and it will come back with the result set saying, oh, this is uh, an air manifold or a thermostat or what have you. So... I may not know the name of the object, but again, I can interact with my application like I would with just a, a normal human being or a salesperson, show them the object that I'm after, and the application would detect what it is. And then I can take it a step further. I can search my database and say, oh, we have uh, three air manifolds in stock, for example. So then the interaction can go further at that point. Cool. Is it anything like Windows Hello, or do you think they're using some of this in Windows Hello? Honestly, I haven't used Windows Hello. Oh, it's the right. It's Windows 10 with a camera, and when you sh it, it logs you in based on your face instead of a PIN or a password. Ah, okay. Yeah. So there is facial recognition, and that's another subcategory. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it can, it can detect who the person is, and furthermore, it can tell who what emotions that person is displaying. Ah. Cool. They're happy, they're sad, you know, they're yeah. upset. Again, it just returns a JSON result set that you parse and you can identify uh, what it is that you're looking for. So I imagine Microsoft has had to feed it a lot of data to be able to determine someone's emotional state <laughs> based off of their facial expressions. Yeah. So that's the, the nice thing about it is that it's already, a lot of this stuff is already pre-built mm -hmm. for you. Uh, again, you just make the API call and then all the magic happens in the cloud on the back end, and you get the results that then see what portions you need to pull out of that JSON result set. Meaning, do I need to see where the face is in the image, or am I more concerned with what that user is, uh, what emotion that user is portraying? Mm -hmm. Happiness, sadness, etc. But I, I would assume, like, yes, though. Like, I reckon Microsoft has probably paid, like, people that are to just sit there for, like, 12 hours a day looking at images <laughs> and say, happy, sad, angry, you know, like <laughs> probably the worst job ever. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, a lot of uh, math goes into it and a lot of precision work goes into that as well. Um, yeah. You know, the measurements from side to side of your face, whether you're smiling or you're sad and yeah. your eyes as well. Definitely not a job I would want to take right. on, but I do like the end result. Though, I have to admit Absolutely. That. Well, I think that's, that's actually the, the really, uh, really awesome thing about cloud computing. Just the, the amount of 
things that we can do these days is just to develop a lot. Like I asked you earlier before, like, do you need to know AI? And it sounds like, you know, you might need to know a little bit about it and what it does and all stuff, but I don't need to be an AI. I don't need to get a PhD in um, AI to be able to do all this stuff. You know, it, this is just a, a service now that I can just consume. You know, that's great. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be an ML or AI expert, like you said. But I mean, it, it does take some training. It is not completely a mm. turnkey solution. You do have to do some training and, and check for the, the results. Set. But again, I don't have to get a PhD in AI to be able to do this. So I believe we've all done some OCR work, I would assume, right? It's it's a fairly common thing. You know, and in the past, right, we have, we paid companies for their software solution or to process a client's file folders, right? Or their, their filing cabinets or have, you know, thousands of documents. So I'm guessing their OCR functionality is can do things along those lines. You, you feed it the documents you want. It reads it in. How does it store it? What does it do with it? What's the what's the process? So again, uh, like mm-hmm. everything else, you get a JSON okay. result set back, right? If I'm concerned with OCR, yeah. all I care about is the text within right. it. And so it provides additional information as well within that uh, JSON. Essentially, think of mm-hmm. it this way. You have a business card. Typical business cards contain a logo, your name, address, phone number, right? right? And so it uh, once you submit that image of the card, then it will come back and say that there's an image located in the upper left-hand mm-hmm. corner. And then there is the first line of text is located at coordinates 1, 2, 3, for mm-hmm. example, and then the text contained within it. And then likewise, there's another line below it and the text contained right. within it. So it kind of using coordinate system, it draws the, the business card mm-hmm. for you via text mm-hmm. so you can... Imagine where things lie, but you can. But the benefit of that, you can also identify which lines you want to extract. For example, if I'm only interested in the name and not the address or phone number, I can just extract that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I worked on a project years ago where we actually imported documents for a local government agency here, and we ended up having the PDFs loaded to a database, blob storage, and when they would search for it, the PDF would come up. But we had done the OCRs. We also had all the the text in a database, and they could search for words within that document, and we would find the text and highlight it within inside the PDF. That was an interesting project. I'd be curious to see how Azure handles would handle that. But very cool. So the way it would work with Azure is you would take uh-huh. an image and then submit it via the uh, REST okay. API, and then because you don't have to store the image locally and you're not storing any SDKs locally on the machine okay. either. Again, it's just an API call. So you can run on a very thin client. On a mobile device, you can uh, submit the image, send it, get the results set back, and then your application would decipher which lines are important to me to extract. And you pull that out of the JSON, cool. and you're done. You don't need to store the document. Nice. Yeah, that would definitely... Yeah, I think I remember working on a... I'm sorry? Since I, um, I remembered working on a project that did have to use um, OCR at some stage in my career as well. And we always had load issues because it would it would always take some seconds to do it. And if you had too many people working on it at once, yeah, it would basically queue up. But it sounds like with your thing, yeah, you, know, you let your handle the load. So it's great. Yeah, very handy. So what's the service model for Azure Azure Cognitive Services? How pricing, is it pay-as-you-go? How's how's it set up? 
So it varies on the, the service that you're using, but essentially there's always the, the free tier that's available. And depending on the service you're using, it will allow X number of transactions per day free of charge. And then, of course, if you're going to a, a premium package, then, again, the pricing differs depending on which service you're using. Okay. So it's great because if you just want to experiment right. with it, like, for example, Lewis, I think on the, uh, the free package, you can use up to 1,000 transactions per day free of charge. So nice. you can definitely get your testing yeah. in and uh, play around with it without having to commit to uh, anything uh, financial. That's one of the things I definitely like about Azure is especially for like a hobbyist or a solo developer, or you're just, you're, you're trying to, you know, learn things and get better. They're not going to, to put you into, <laughs> into debt just to do that. Right. Because they want you to get using their services and then go to your boss like, hey, look at this cool thing I can do with Azure Cognitive Services. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And your company spends $100,000 on it, right? (laughs) Right. right. I know that. I mean, I always say licensing in general will make or break a software Mm. product. So there, I think Microsoft has done a great job with manipulating or not manipulating, maneuvering that course of licensing where they always offer free packages or uh, a free tier so that way you can kind of get your feet wet, experiment with it, and get comfortable with it before you have to commit X number of dollars. And this goes to pretty much all their products. I mean, look at Visual Studio. They made a community edition that's free of charge. The whole point is they want to get people on board, get comfortable with it before they can commit to buying the the professional or enterprise Mm -hmm. editions. So carries all throughout their their packages. Yeah. Yeah. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. So is there anything else that you want to call out with Azure Cognitive Services or anything that, that you think would be beneficial for people to know before we go to our next topic? I think we covered a good deal of, mm-hmm. of it. The, the beautiful thing is it's uh, it's not just a cool mm-hmm. factor, but it's something that can carry over into the business world and it can take applications to a whole new yeah. level. 
So as software developers, we always strive to have a, a nice, friendly user interface. And we do our best of doing that. Well, if you think about it, what's better and what's more friendly than interacting with another person? Right. You don't have to structure a sentence in a specific way. You don't have to type things in 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 a specific format. You can just Mm -hmm. talk, speech. It's the same thing. You can take that spoken language and using a lot of the cognitive services, like, for example, speech to text, convert that into a phrase, send it to Lewis. Lewis would then identify what the intent of that user is, and then it will respond back. And then your application can process it and then use text-to-speech to to respond back to your your user. So now you're having a vocal conversation with your application where you can speak freely, unstructured, Mm -hmm. and the application will understand you. And then that also carries over into the object detection, like I said. If you walk into a specialty parts store, for example, and there's a kiosk there, instead of having to know what the name of a specific part that you're looking for, you can just hold up a picture of it and say, this is the item that I want, and it will detect what it is, And then it can search inventory, give you pricing options, all sorts of things. In addition, you add the personalizer service on top of that, where it can tell you other items that might go well with it, or depending on the use case scenario for that specific user, it can help to pick products that are more of a fit than the one the user is asking for, Uh, maybe make recommendations. So there's a lot of business cases for it. It's not just the, the coolness of it. But I see a lot of real-world value uh, that it brings. So something else that you're you're interested in or you've delved into, you mentioned uh, SQL for developers. Are you talking about the developer tools in your local box or just SQL in general? Not so much developer tools, but uh, SQL Server since 2008, they started putting out some features that were developer-friendly or targeting developers and things like file tables and file streams. So I think you mentioned before the conversation Mm -hmm. started that you were working with uh, a customer where you had to store a lot of blobs. Mm -hmm. So there you run into the problem. Do I store this blob in the database and have full control over it, but I bloat my database? Or do I store it on a shared file system and just simply have a pointer to it, but then I lose full control over that file? Right. Right. Where someone could easily delete it off that file system. So... With file tables, it gives you the best of both worlds. You store a pointer to that file. The file sits on the file system, but the entire file system where that file sits is managed by SQL Server file groups. And so like in file groups, typically you have your MDF and your LDF for your database and your the, mm-hmm. the log. But then there's also another folder that it creates for file tables. And so it stores it and it controls that file structure So no one can just willy-nilly go in there and remove a file. But at the same time, it's not bloating my database. Nice. And one of the really cool features is I can uh, turn on full text search and I can set a search catalog on those files. So the example that I demoed before, let's say that you have, again, a car dealership. We always go back to the car dealership. You have cars that come into inventory and you have their spec sheets. You'd simply have your admin assistant just simply click and drag those spec sheets into that folder. And now we have full documentation of all the vehicles that we have in stock. So a customer could come in and say, I'm looking for a V6 with leather. So we search for those options and boom, it comes up immediately. Didn't have to build a special interface for it. Everything is stored within the file system, but it's accessible through SQL and uh, 
and T-SQL. So because it's accessible through SQL, likewise, I can also access it through my application. And so it gives you some great features in the sense of full control, but again, without bloating the database. So it would just appear like like a column in, in a row, like a cell in a column. So it would just appear like a, a column in a, in a table, but in the background, it's, it's actually getting it from the, the file storage. Well, technically, file table is basically a set schema. And so once you create that, it's a, I think it's a schema of about 12 different columns. You can't really modify them. Oh, oh, in another table. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it creates an entire table, but one of the columns within that table, like you mentioned, does point to the file system. Mm. So it's all managed by SQL Server Engine, and it's nice because you have full control over it. And is it, it, I'm guessing you can use it with ND Framework and things like that. Unfortunately not. Last I checked, it has not been uh, Entity Framework enabled, but you may not be able to access the files through EF, but you can certainly check out their their metadata through the, the file table. You can see if a file exists or not. You can, I believe you can search through it in EF using the, the full text catalog, uh, but you may not be able to retrieve that file directly through EF. There are other means of retrieving it in .NET, just not in EF yet. Mm. Uh, that yeah. sounds pretty cool, actually. Well, well I was going to say, I could... Yeah, unfortunately, not many developers know right. about it, but I, I love that feature. It's just very handy. I'll be honest, right? I, I use SQL every day in some form or fashion, and uh, I have never used file groups. So that's... And I think part of that may be, as a developer, right, you, you have these tried and true methods... You know, especially like when you're dealing with files, right? You've got a certain way, you know, this way works. This is how you're going to, to go with it. You know, memory streams or you've got, like you said, you're doing Azure blob storage or something. And, but I can definitely see the benefits of this, especially from the metadata perspective. Yeah. Yeah. All the metadata is stored there in mm-hmm. columns. So just easily search on it, you know, last date modified or last date or date created. You know, all those uh, fields are stored in the table. And is this feature available in across all of the different versions of Azure? You know, there's like Azure, you know, SQL instance, um, and then there's Azure SQL, and then there's, I guess, on-premise SQL server as well. Is this a feature that's consistent across all the instances? I'm not sure about the Azure instance, but it's definitely available in all editions on-prem. Yeah. So that includes the standard edition, enterprise edition. Um, and again, it's a great feature to have. Keep in mind, you're storing files locally on the hard disk, Mm. But they're just managed by SQL Server. So, I, again, I, I, I'd have to look and see if that's covered by Azure or not. Mm. Okay. And, you know, you got me thinking about Entity Framework and how it would work with this. And I could see how that would be a, not necessarily a difficult task, but an interesting problem to solve, being able to do all of this through Entity Framework, the file load and everything. But it would be cool if that were, if that were something that, that was on the roadmap that they were working on. I'm sure it is. I just haven't uh, looked to see how far along they are with it. But I mean, like I said, you can still access it in in a .NET app just outside right. of PDF. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think the big struggle with that is the hierarchy ID fields. If you remember, that was introduced in 2008 in SQL Server. So that's a data type that helps to identify the location of an entity within a hierarchy. And so in, in this case, the entity is the file. So you could have a file that's nested within several folders deep, and it will give you a hierarchy of where that file is located as well as a direct path. So that hierarchy ID could also be used to 
display the hierarchy of an organization, right? We have multiple levels, people on the same level as well as vertically. So I think that was the stumbling block for getting that into EF. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about when it comes to to SQL? No, I, I mean, there is uh, file streams, which is the, the basic feature behind file tables. Uh, so file streams is just the raw ability to store files on the file system, and you have to do an API call to be able to get them. But file tables builds on that in the sense that it manages the, the API call for you, as well as all the metadata pertaining to those files on the file system. So think of it this way. I, whenever I get to ask the question, the difference between file stream and file tables, file stream is to a wheel and file tables is to a car. Hmm. So a car is nothing without the wheels. It just builds on top of it. Gee, all my examples are car related. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, right? It's something that I think just about anybody can, can picture Right. You can you can relate to it. Right. So. All right. Cool. Why do you have any any other questions? Well, um, Sandy, you, before you were talking about how you run a community group, did you want to tell us a little bit about, about that? Sure. I would love to. So I used to attend a user group back circa 2000, 2001, and it was going fairly well. And then all of a sudden I get an email from the organizer saying that he has to step down. And I really hated to see that effort go to waste. And so I asked him if I could have the mailing list and I would pick it up at that point. And uh, he was more than happy to share the list with me. And I picked up the group in July 2003 and uh, been stuck with it uh, or been sticking with it, I should say, ever since. It's been a great endeavor. We meet locally up until a little something called COVID uh, came our way. And so we've been meeting online ever since. But it's a great opportunity to learn new technology, to network with others. And it just opened up a lot of doors for me because of the interaction with others. I always tell people that the meetings are essentially two parts. You have the technical presentation and then the networking portion that happens afterwards. It's not just getting together for a drink, but it's networking, finding out who else is is working on something else in your field, who is hiring, who's looking for work. So and not to mention a lot of other community activities came out of it. So like one time, for example, we were having a drink after the meeting and someone was like, you know, I'd really love to learn more about WPF and, and Silverlight. If, you, if we can remember back uh, that far back uh, with Silverlight. So I thought about it and I'm like, you know what? Why don't we start an online study group and targeting P- WPF? And a lot of people jumped on board and, you know, we, we went with it. So the .NET study group was basically formed around the idea of getting certified in a specific technology. So we, we started off with WPF. We ran for about 12 weeks going one chapter out of a specific book until we finished it, then took some time off to study. And then we shared some notes about passing the exam. And, you know, when people were past it, we took a little bit of a break and then we got back into it again with HTML5 and then MVC. So it's a very fruitful endeavor. It's not just so so much showing up, watching a presentation and leaving, but you really need to network with others. And then even beyond that, we got together with a group of others and we started putting together conferences in the Cleveland area. And again, that just, it kept growing and growing. So very fruitful activity. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to work with the community in the Cleveland area as well as worldwide, honestly. Ever since COVID hit, now that everything is virtual, you can pretty much zip from one conference to the other, from one end of the world to the other by the click of a mouse. 
And so that's one advantage or one silver lining in that dark cloud. You still have so drinks great online? I'm sorry? Say, so do you still have the drinks online? Like kind of afterwards, everyone grabs the beer? <laughs> Uh, it's pretty much bring your own at that point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think the technology is there where we can uh, zap drinks over from one side to the other. But <laughs> if it happens, I'll be the first to jump well, on. Well, you know, it's interesting because we've talked, Wise mentioned that he actually gets to hang out with his friends more now because they can all <laughs> get online and, and have a beer together at their house, right? Because like me, he has kids and it's it's hard to get out. But these days, they can't get out either. So everybody just gets online and has a Zoom party. So yeah, yeah my yeah. social so life has never been better. COVID, so. <laughs> <laughs> Before COVID, what we did with the .NET study group, it was intentionally set so that we would meet at nine o'clock at night. And the, the intent of that was, you know, people would have uh, finished their work, come home, have dinner, put the kids to bed. And now all you got to do is just turn on your laptop and just follow along, right? And it was a great experience for everybody. Mm. So there are a lot of advantages to doing things online. There are. That's that's yeah. cool. But I get you though about the so the, the meetups being more about the the people you meet than than the presentation. Like the presentation, you can. I mean, the, the knowledge is out there on the internet. The really cool things about the meetups is just meeting people who are really like really into what you're into as well. You know, like very often, even at work, like I I, I, I love talking tech with people, but a lot of people I work with are just they're either not into tech or you know they're not in, in IT or they're just like. IT is just their kind of like their nine to five job, you know. They have no really interest about talking mm-hmm. about it. I think so. Meeting people who are really passionate right. about it really makes you passionate as well. Absolutely. Oh yeah. One of the big highs for me is like going to a conference and just learning a lot of things, and you just want to come home and, and nerd out on it. Um, <laughs> but life kind of gets life and work get in the way of things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's why you gotta uh, you try to work your way into a job where where you get to play with these new toys as part of your work, like a developer advocate or an architect position like I've got. Luckily, I'm actually starting to dig into some Blazor stuff, and that's going to be part of my workload. So (laughs) I'm blessed. (laughs) You know, another advantage of the the meetups is you listen to subject matter experts in a lot of cases. People that have worked in it, you know, stories from the trenches, as I mm-hmm. call them. Uh, they tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly about a, a technology they adopted. But then the the other thing is that you're able to ask questions and interact with them, and then you can learn from their mistakes as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of benefit to be gained from it. Absolutely. All right. So unless y'all have anything else, I think we can move on to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or... If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Oh, so, Caleb, do you want to talk about your pick this week? Yeah, let's see if I can pull a rabbit out of my hat. I was going to say something else, but it, it wasn't nearly as PC. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, tell me afterwards <laughs> yeah there you go so i think my pick this week is actually going to be it's kind of it's a little odd honestly it is a free 
Android app that is choose your own adventure. And it's, you know, this, this fantasy based deal. And this guy has done it on his own kind of a passion project, but right. You start reading it and then you get make choices and you make the wrong choice and your character dies and you have to go back to the last checkpoint and you build up skills. There's some RPG elements, but I'm on the second book and I'm, really enjoying it you know it's it's been a lot of fun and he's actually turned them into written books like paper books of course it doesn't have the choose your own adventure part he had to pick a storyline but but yeah it's uh, called well, medium choose your own adventure books used to be paper books right so <laughs> well yeah yeah but yeah after he finished them he he i guess he self-published and and put them out there so mm. if you're interested in that kind of stuff or you know like like from childhood when uh, I remember doing Choose Your Own Adventures, uh, it's been it's been uh, something that I've enjoyed. I could spend a few minutes on it here and there, and it's uh, it's been fun. I actually used to really love the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Actually, right? Oh, right. Like, yeah. As a kid, so yeah, yeah. So what about you? Why? I what happened to them? So my pick this week. So this this might be a little bit obscure, actually. It's a it's a new podcast. It's called Who Is Daniel Johns. That it just came out of Spotify. So. So, Dungeon Johns is this guy who started a band when he was like 14. Um, and it ended up being one of like the biggest bands in Australia. The band's called Silverchair. And then he kind of became a little bit of a recluse. So, this, this podcast will just go into like basically what happened and how kind of fame stuffed him up and stuff like that. And yeah, like Silverchair used to be like one of my favorite bands growing up. So, it's, um, it is, it's a, it's a really interesting podcast for me. So, but may not be for other people that are, that aren't Australian, I guess. So. <laughs> I've I've actually heard the name before, so yeah, yeah, cool, nice. Well, that's Sam. What about you? Do you have a pick? My pick is uh, a podcast called How I Built This, and basically, it's uh, entrepreneurs and the businesses they built, and I love hearing their stories and their successes that came after their failures, and especially those that are in the tech field. Uh, so, for example, the the guys that started Zillow, the guys that started uh, Kayak and The Knot and a variety of other websites, and they talk about how they built the business, some of the, the hurdles they had to overcome, and in some cases, some of the low budget that they were forced to start with because banks wouldn't give them loans, but they managed to work their way around hurdles and built it into multi-billion dollar businesses. I think uh, Kayak was sold to Priceline for $1.8 billion with a B. So just goes to show you, if you know how to write APIs and websites, could be very profitable. Yeah, I've listened to that podcast. Yeah, actually have, uh, it's good. Yeah. I think it goes to show that it's not just that one that technical skill set though, though it shows you like how what, what other skill sets is required to to be an entrepreneur you know like um it's all it's not just skill sets though it's also about that the ability to take on risk you know like um you hear of people just basically like putting in their life savings and things like that um you know, like, no matter how confident I was in, in something I was producing, I could I could probably never do that. To be honest, that that just wouldn't be in my DNA. You know, so yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, one of my favorite stories is uh, the the entrepreneur that built uh, edible arrangements. I don't know if they're available in Australia, but basically, it's uh, a store where they make uh, what appears to be arrangements made out of flowers, but it's actually made out of fruit, and so hence the name edible arrangements. And one of the interesting stories is when he was building his business and he was just at that threshold where he needed to more money so he can scale, he was turned down by the bank. And so obviously it was a huge setback or appeared to be a huge setback for him. But what it turned out was made him look inwards and see all the tools that he has and be able to better facilitate 
what he had in stock and what he had in hand. And then he was able to build a business more efficiently that way. So the the learning thing there is not every setback or every closed door uh, is a negative thing. It could actually lead to a positive thing. Mm. Interesting about the edible arrangement. So like you go to a wedding and then like, the wedding finishes and then everyone can just eat the, the arrangements on the table. Uh, it's more of a, um, it's more of like a, uh, holiday gift thing that gets mailed to like your parents or your uh-huh. girlfriend or your wife, right. For like, uh, Valentine's or whatever. So yeah, yeah. cause they're big. They're, they're huge typically. So yeah, but it, it is interesting. Yeah, I have yet to see it as a wedding cake <laughs> or, uh, or a center. Arrangement, so well, who knows? Hey, that's, that's actually a good idea. Why you, you should get in contact with the CEO. Let, let him know. Hey, you got a you got a money making <laughs> idea. <laughs> let us in on the profits. There you go. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. So, um, if the audience wants to reach you, what would be the best way? So you can find me all over social media using first and last name Sam Nasser N A S R. My email Sam Nasser at live dot com. Uh, Twitter is Sam Nasser. Same thing with LinkedIn, and I'd be happy to answer any questions for you. Or if you need any help with getting cognitive services up and running or uh, how it could add business value to an app that you have or maybe a proof of concept, I'm all over that. Would love to help you with that. Uh, awesome. Maybe some um, of our listeners will take you up on that. Yeah, <laughs> we'd love to. <laughs> all right. So what does Sean usually say here? He says, so what's, what's our thing? So it's, it's at dot net yeah. superhero right? at um, Twitter. Yes. So uh, <laughs> if, if any of you want to reach out to us, you can reach Sean at .NET Superhero, and then I go, why? Dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah, TaylorWorlds.com, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we really need and Sean. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm Caleb Wells yeah. Coach. And yeah. uh, hopefully Sean will be back for the next episode, and he gets to do all the, the fun intro and outro stuff. <laughs> this was fun (laughs) it was it was it was good cool awesome all right well thanks everyone see you on the next episode bye Bye, y'all bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more